0: We're going to be continuing in our series, The Hidden Hand of God, looking at the book of Ruth uh, today. Uh, So if you've got your Bibles, you can open them to Ruth. Uh, This Christmas, I got probably one of the best presents I've had for a long, long time. And you probably can't even see it, but it's this white plastic rectangular thing. Does anyone know what it is? Can anyone see what it is even? Maybe a front row person. Lego. I got some Lego for my Christmas present, and I know what you're all thinking. You're 35, not five, but I was excited like a five year old. I was so, so happy with my Lego present. And the reality of Lego, if you've ever done it, is like it's loads of these small little bits that people can't really even see, like from the back. They're insignificant. It's like a little bit of plastic. It kind of is rectangular with a couple of small rectangular divots in the top. It's nothing impressive at all. But as I sat there night after night, it became something a little bit more impressive. And as all the bits went together, and it started to look quite impressive, until one night, you don't need to wait until the end, I was only joking. One night, the great reveal. It's good, isn't it? I mean, now you're thinking it is good. It isn't five-year-old Lego. It's 18 plus, I'll have you know. Um, It became this, like, incredible model, all right? So it went from being... Oh, no, please don't lose it, Josh. That would absolutely devastate me. It came from being this tiny little bit of insignificant Lego to this, like, incredible model, as every piece kind of found its place, as me, who was making it, followed the instructions and created this, like, amazing model of a Porsche 911. And then you can look back and see where every piece kind of fits in. You can see, you know, like, the, it's incredibly complicated. The drive drivetrain, drive train, the, the steering wheel, the kind of the engine in the back. You can look back at it and see something that at the time seems really insignificant has a lot of significance. Today, what I want us to do... Finish that and put it safely. Today what I want us to do is to raise our expectations for the everyday. To raise our expectations for what God can do in the seemingly insignificant, in the seemingly mundane, in the seemingly small little bits of Lego. I want us to raise our expectations. And so that might be for us in the workplace. That might be for us in the home Environment That might be for us in the gym or walking the dog or wherever your everyday is. I want us to raise our expectations for what God can do. I want them to become places where we see the hand of God move as we get caught up in his big story. Revelation 7 verse 9 and 10 says this, I looked and saw a multitude too large to count, from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every tongue, to so Swedes, Brits, Indians, Brazilians, Chinese, and every other tongue before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne. There is no other story there is not a subplot to this story. The story of a creator God redeeming and reconciling and ransoming everything to him. That is the story. Every other story fits in to that story. Every other story is a little piece of Lego that the master craftsman puts in. To the story where one day we will all stand, people from all nations, before Jesus and Christ. Salvation to our God. This is why we are here. This is why you are here. Because God is writing his story. And he has written you into his story. It's why you have the job that you have. It's why you speak the languages that you speak. It's why you live where you live. It's why you have the gifts that you have. It's why you have the finances that you have. Everything, everything falls into the story of God, a God who is redeeming and reconciling and ransoming everything to him. So if you open your Bibles to Ruth, if you're there, if you've not been with us so far... We've met in chapter 1 of Ruth a family who are hungry. There's famine in the land. Bethlehem, the house of bread, has no bread. And so they head east to a place called Moab where they're in search of food. But the reality is that chapter 1 is a tragic story. It's a story of loss. So Naomi loses her husband first. She then loses her two boys. She loses everything. Okay, so the chapter one of Ruth is really, it's actually really quite hard reading. Towards the end, we find out that there is food in Bethlehem. So Naomi heads back with both Ruth and Oppa to start off with. Then she says, like, why are you following me? And Oppa says, yeah, good point. I'm going to go back to Moab. But Ruth says, do you know what? No, where you go, I go. Your people, my people. Your God will be my God. She shows this thing called hesed, love. Sacrificial love. She gives up everything to follow her mother-in-law, Naomi. And Al spoke about that a couple of weeks ago. And then they arrived back in Bethlehem, the house of bread. But Naomi is unrecognisable. People look at her and think, is that, is that Naomi? She looks so different to when she left. She's bitter. She's angry, angry with God. And what I want us to see today uh, is how everyday decisions that we make find their place in God's big story as we look at chapter 2 of Ruth. But we'll start with verse 22 of verse 1. So, chapter 1, verse 22 of Ruth. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Okay, so here we have the introduction, really, for chapter 2. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Okay, we're going to pause there and park Boaz. Next week, Jobin's going to introduce us to the character Boaz a lot more. Um, but we, so we're going to park that, but the author introduces him because, again, this chapter is going to focus a lot on him. Then it kind of goes away again from Boaz. So Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, her mother-in-law, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favour. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. Gleaning. So what is gleaning? Basically, as we read, it's gathering or picking up the left-over grain. So when someone would go to glean, what they would do is that they would pick up the leftover grain. Leviticus 19 says this, you can turn there if you want. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Quickly turn there. Leviticus 19, or scroll there, whatever you do. Verse 9 to 10. So This is what uh, God says in the Mosaic Law. When you reap the harvest of your land, you are not to reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You must not strip your vineyard bare or gather its fallen grapes. Leave them for the poor. Leave them for the foreigner. So Leviticus 19 demonstrates the generosity of God. As you harvest your crops, don't strip the land completely bare. Leave a bit on the side. And if you drop anything, leave that so that as the poor come behind you, they can pick up. They can have a meal. As the foreigner come behind you, they can pick up. They can have a meal. As a widow comes behind you, they can pick up, they can have a meal. Deuteronomy 24 says the same thing. And Ruth and Naomi are widows, they're poor, and Naomi is a foreigner. So they fill the specifications, the qualifications, of someone who is allowed to glean according to the Mosaic law. But if we remember the opening of Ruth in the days when the judges ruled. And if we remember Judges 21-25 that said, there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, then we'd probably put two and two together and realise that probably not all landowners were allowing people to glean. Why should they have my crops? I'm not following the law. I do what's right in my own eyes. So as Ruth steps into the field, she's taking a big risk. She's a woman. She's a foreigner. And she's doing this in a time when actually people weren't following the law. They weren't following Leviticus 19 necessarily. So that's probably why she was looking for a field in someone whose eyes she has favour. She was looking for a field like that of Boaz, a man of grace, who we're going to find out more about next week. But Ruth shows, again, this hesed love, this sacrificial love. Naomi, I'm going to go. I'm going to take a big risk because I will provide for you, is basically what she is saying. So, verse 3. She went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. The ESV says this. She, ha- she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. So what, what's happening here? Ruth is looking for food. She's doing something very practical. Her and her mother-in-law have arrived back in Bethlehem. They're hungry. They're tired from the trip. What do we need? Priority number one, food. And so she goes out, she does something very, very practical. She looks for food, and God moves. The small moments that have the potential to change history. In 2007, Steve Jobs took to the stage to introduce something that I think a lot of people thought he was crazy for introducing. As as phones, I think this was the time when phones had gone from like really big to smaller and smaller and smaller. Steve Jobs introduces this phone that everyone thinks that's an interesting phone. I think we've got a picture of it. We have got a picture. The one on the left. It is the first ever iPhone. And people look at it and think, not sure about that. A moment that changed history. Is there anyone in this room that doesn't have some sort of smartphone? There's not many people around that don't have a smartphone in the whole world. A moment that changed history. The uh, picture on, the, uh, on your left is a bridge. It's a bridge in a small town uh, called Cockermouth with about 8,000 people in it, northwest England, a very average-looking bridge if you can see it because of the light but it's a bridge that changed history because on that bridge, Nina and myself met for the first ever time. I was walking with my dad. She was walking with her mum. I think my dad had probably planned it and paid her mum a lot of money to like, you're going to be on this bridge at this time, okay? I'll, give you, I'll make it worth your while. But we met. That was the first time we met and it was a moment that changed history. On Friday... Uh, Nina and I and the family had the privilege of saying goodbye to uh, a man called Jarl, Nina's grandfather. 65 years ago, approximately, he was a 29-year-old man, come from Finland with his wife to Sweden, who was not a Christian. He didn't love Jesus, but he had a son who was, who was given the news, or they were given the news that his son was going to die with the sickness that he had. There was no way that he would be healed. And so they did what I think the majority of people, whatever your belief, do today, and they prayed. And in their prayer, they were very specific. They said, God, if you're real, heal our son. If you heal our son, we're going to give our lives to you. We promise that for however long we live, I think he died at 94, we're going to honour and serve you. That boy got completely healed. And what was amazing was looking around the funeral on Friday and seeing Nina's mum, Nina's mum's sisters and brothers, all or most of them who know Jesus, seeing their kids, so Nina, brothers, and the other sister's, Brothers and sisters, all who know Jesus, looking at our kids like Oscar and, and all the young ones who are a bit young at the moment, but who we pray one day will know Jesus. This this rich family history has come from this one moment of seeing God just heal a boy. Moments change everything. It was a privilege hearing your story last last weekend the testimony of a couple who didn't know Jesus, weren't able to call God Father, but suddenly at a bus stop saying a prayer, God turns up, a moment that changes history. Who knows what's going to happen as you guys follow Jesus, who are going to be able to look back and say, wow, this started all those years ago at the bus stop. As it turned out, it just so happened the author said, So Ruth and Naomi, they're hungry, and so Ruth makes a very, very practical, everyday decision, let's go and get food, and then suddenly, as it turned out, it just so happened that she goes into the field of Boaz. Now, an accurate translation of this phrase, as it turned out, or it just happened, is actually, she chanced she her chance chanced upon so saying chance two times her chance chanced upon which kind of doesn't really sound like it makes that much sense basically what the author is saying here is by a stroke of luck if you're speaking english by a stroke of luck her chance chanced upon my dad, I grew up with a, uh, a guy who used to be in a house every so often, and he always used to say, there's no such thing as luck. So if I was, oh, that was lucky, he said, there's no such thing as luck. But it seems here what the author is saying, her chance chanced upon, or English kind of translation, by a stroke of luck, or as it turned out, or just so happened, it seems that the author here is saying that there is such a thing as luck, that as she comes into Boaz's field, it's just a chance, chance. It's just a bit of luck that this guy is full of grace, as we're going to find out next week. That he is her kinsman redeemer, which means that he had responsibility for the widow's, uh, uh, for her, um, she, he had responsibility for the widow. So, what is the author doing here? Is the author suggesting that everything is just chance? Is he saying that everything is just based on luck? The meeting between Ruth and Boaz was just a lucky encounter. The meeting that leads to Obed, which then leads to his son, Jesse, which then leads to his son, King David, which then leads to, leads to, leads to King's Je- King Jesus, that it was just luck. The reason that we are standing here today, that we are able to say and come before, as Moses did, this holy God, because of what Jesus has done, is down to luck. Is that what the author is saying here? Not at all. The author is not saying that. What the author is doing is he's he's being ironic. He's saying, sit up, listen. He kind of forces the reader to kind of double take. I think, wait, is the Bible saying there's luck? And say, no, wait a minute. There's something else happening here. See, the temptation, this is my temptation, with answered prayer, when I've been praying for a housing situation, which as we were a church plan, we always prayed for housing situations. Praying for Ollie's work, for example, or, or, or for people to come and join us. The temptation is just, are the there When you see the prayer answered, is think, oh, that was lucky. Just so happened that there was a house available. Just so happened that this person created a job for Ollie, basically. Oh, just so happened. It was lucky. That's my temptation. I probably, I'm guessing, I'm not the only one. And what the author is saying here is to say, don't do that. Don't live a life by just saying, oh, that was lucky. Answer prayer, oh, that was lucky. What he is saying is, see the hand of God. See how God is directing everything. See how God is directing Ruth into Boaz's field. This is not luck. She didn't just happen to go into the field of Boaz, it's all because of God and he has planned it. It's called the providence of God. Now the providence of God is a theological word that actually a word that doesn't come up in the Bible but basically what it means is that God guides and governs all events that the hidden hand of God is behind all events that he just guides and he puts these bits of lego into place because he is good and it's for his glory it's the providence of God God is guiding And so why are we here today? Why are you here today? Why are you working where you are working? Why do you have the gifts that you have? It's because of the providence of God as he guides and directs and builds and leads. And so Ruth's visit in the field was not just a chance upon chance, 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 chance. It's the providence of God, a good God, writing his story, bringing Ruth into that. Ephesians 1.11 says that God is working out everything according to the counsel of his will. Proverbs 16.9 says this, A man's heart plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. Later on in verse 33, as it talks about casting lots, it is the Lord, like rolling a dice, it is the Lord that even makes the dice land on the number that it lands on. God is behind everything. John Piper says this, From Genesis to Revelation, the providence of God directs the entire course of history. Its extent reaches down to the flight of electrons, the smallest things, and up to the movements of galaxies, the biggest things. Charles Spurgeon says this, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sun, shame there's no sunbeam at the moment, but every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom or less than God wishes. It's the providence of God. God is in control. God is guiding and creating and leading. When I was younger, I sang a song called, He's got the whole world in his hands. got the whole world. Everyone's looking at me like, did you? Anyone else sing that song? One person, two people? A few people. Okay, good, are You all look blank, but you're not. You're loving it inside. You're singing it inside. God has everything in his hands, and he guides and he leads. Matthew 10, 29 says this as Jesus speaks. He says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. Aren't these things sold really super cheap? But they're not going to die unless your father in heaven wills it. It's the providence of God. I wonder, do you know that? Do you know that God is in control? So he's in control of the famine. As famine hits, as Bethlehem, the house of bread, has no bread, God is in control. He's in control of the harvest when there's plenty. So often we can think, okay, and Scott spoke about this actually last week as well. When, when there's nothing, God's not in it. And when there's something, God is in it. No, God is in everything. And He is in control of everything, guiding and leading and building His story. And that brings hope, that brings comfort. Because things aren't easy. All the time. I I know personal stories. I understand that we can go through difficulties. I understand we can go through happy times as well. But in all these times we can get comfort and we can get hope because we are loved and we are being led by a father who is in control. There is nothing outside of his control. And he is telling his story a story of redemption, of redeeming, of reconciling, of ransoming, of bringing everyone to him. Every tribe, tongue, nation, everyone will be before Jesus. And he does that by, in this story, a hungry, Hesed loving foreign woman looking after her mother-in-law. That's how he writes his story. With the insignificant pieces of Lego. The beauty of the story of Ruth is she's just it's just a small family, so insignificant. Yet God is writing his story. And the gospel, the gospels are full of these moments. As as these brothers go out fishing. Moments that change everything. As, as these brothers go out fishing, and they meet this guy who says, drop your nets, I will make you fishers of men. A moment that changes everything. As a woman goes to the well thirsty, and goes in the middle of the day because she's an outcast, no one wants to be with her, yet she meets Jesus, and suddenly this broken woman is redeemed, is loved, is built up again a moment that changes everything. As Jesus is kissed in the garden and betrayed by one of his friends, a moment that changes everything. As Jesus says on the cross, it is finished. A moment that changes everything. As the sisters, Mary, goes to the tomb, he is not here, the angel says. He has risen. A moment that changes everything. Everyday moments that change the course of history as God is knitting together his story of redemption. I wonder, are we living in expectation of moments like this? This is is where I wanted to land today. If, If you go away with one thing, other than Lego is super cool, which it is, Go away with this. Are you living with an expectation of moments like this? Like Jarl as he prayed and suddenly generations are added into the family of God, into his story. As we kind of walk to Boaz's field, wherever that is for us, everyday moments are we living in expectation that God will show up and do amazing things. Perhaps this week, Perhaps this week is the week that as we go to work, as we go to the gym, as we walk the dog, as we go to the supermarket to buy some food, it is as simple as that. Perhaps this is when. Are we living in expectation that God can show up in these places? Or do we have the idea that it's just a Sunday morning thing or a small group thing? God is writing his story. And my my heart and my encouragement to us as a church is let's be on the lookout for moments that can change history. Moments like this. The story of Ruth is not a story about a massive hero. If you go to the book of Judges when Israel is in a mess, you have stories like that. Gideon, Samson, big hero stories. Ruth is not a story like that. Ruth is someone who loves her mother-in-law So that she gives up everything. God is calling together a people here in Gothenburg who aren't extraordinary. I'm sorry to put it out there. But we're not brilliant. We're not wonderful. Okay? I'm speaking for myself as well. I am not brilliant. I'm not wonderful. Never seen Fundo disagree with me. He's thinking, I'm brilliant. Come on. (laughs) But he's knitting together. A people who are all very ordinary. But I believe he's gonna work through us as we head into the field of Boaz, if you like, whatever your field is, wherever your workplace is, your situation is your home life is, whatever it is, you kind of fill in the gap. But let's be a people who live in expectation for God to move. If you feel insignificant, 1 Corinthians 1 says this: that God chose the weak the foolish, to shame, the strong, and the wise. If you feel insignificant, uh, I do, then that's good news. Because that means God chose you. God chose you to to fool. The strong, uh, the wise. I want to finish. I thought it was, is it okay to invite the band up? I want to finish, I'm not going to be able to find it now, uh, reading Isaiah, a bit of Isaiah 40. I felt as we, as, as, we, as we leave this morning, as we go into the workplace, as we go with the expectation that God can show up Whatever it's so important that we have the correct view of who God is. And uh, it was really helpful, I think, just worship was fantastic today, just really like focusing on God, you are an amazing God. A God who is in control, and I think what I just wanted to do was read just a little bit of Isaiah 40 that talks about the greatness of God. I wonder actually if this that song was based on it. And then after I've done that, we're going to uh, we're going to sing a song of worship, and we're going to take communion. Communion is another moment that changes everything. As Jesus reclined at the table, the Last Supper, this is my body broken for you. He takes the bread gives it. This is my blood shed for you. And he hands out the wine. We we remember Jesus' death. And we look forward to his return. Another moment that will change everything. This is what it says in Isaiah 40. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Can we stand up, please? Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might. His arms rule for him. Behold his reward is with him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. And he will gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollows of his hand? Who has marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult? And whom made him understand? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up coastlands like fine dust. To whom will you liken God? What likeness compares with him? Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. To whom shall you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on and see. He who brings out that host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint. Even youth shall be weary. Even young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That is our God. We're going to worship him now. We're going to fix our eyes upon him. We're going to in faith come before him, trust him, love him as we sing.